This is The Guardian. This week, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky gave a moving address to Parliament on leadership in a time of war. The United Kingdom is marching with us towards the most, I think, the most important victory of our lifetime. But while Ukraine tries to look to the future, Britain's Prime Minister is dogged by voices from the past. We should have had better communication, but we were, in essence, relying on a system who didn't necessarily share our approach. Lagging in the polls and struggling with his internal critics, Rishi Sunak arguably has yet to find his feet as a leader. Will this week's cabinet reshuffle provide the reset he needs? I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Karar, and former Conservative Special Advisor, Salma Shah. Hello, both. Hello. Hi, Gabby. It felt like one of those hairs standing up on the back of your neck moments where suddenly, you know, kind of the war feels very, very real and close and you could you could see the emotional impact in the room. Pippa, you've just come out of a briefing on military aid to Ukraine. Any major developments as a result of this visit? It was very striking that Rishi Sunak said initially that Britain would support in the form of training fighter jets, but a sort of step back from actually providing jets as Zelensky uh, repeatedly suggested in his speech uh, would, would, was actually the, you know what, what they really needed and wanted. And within moments of the speech being over, Boris Johnson uh, put out a statement in which he said, we need to give the Ukrainians the tools to finish the job. Obviously, that has the effect of ramping up pressure on the government. What was really striking in the number 10 briefing afterwards is that the prime minister's spokesman, perhaps aware of some of that pressure, suggested that Rishi Sunak would speak to Ben Wallace, the defence secretary, about whether that might be possible. But making it clear that it would be a long term solution is not something they expect to be able to do in the, in the short term. That's the first time we've had any sign of real public division over how far we should be assisting Ukraine, isn't it? Well, Boris Johnson hasn't been shy in coming forward to say that we need to go further and faster. And obviously, he has been from the very beginning um, a very strong and vocal proponent of Britain supporting um, Ukraine and has carried that on despite the fact he's left office. And it's hard to escape the, the slight feeling that he's quite enjoying going further than the government is necessarily comfortable with him going and pushing and prodding them in the direction that he and the Ukrainians want them to go. Obviously, Rishi Sunak as prime minister has all sorts of other considerations beyond um, beyond those that Boris Johnson now has. Now he's out of government. Um, but I don't think I, I get the feeling that Boris Johnson isn't going to isn't going to uh, give up on this one. Where have we heard that before? Salma, this was obviously uh, Zelensky's first visit to the UK in person. Sunak will have been keen to show that the relationship remains strong despite having a, a new prime minister. Given what we've just heard, do you think both sides will have got what they wanted from this visit? I think that will only transpire when there is a decision made about what kind of you know potential lethal aid the UK is willing to send because it is an outlier um, at the moment especially in terms of its European counterparts um, and I think Rishi Sunak is always going to be I mean as as is the kind of like difference between him and his and his both his predecessors he's always going to be a little bit more cautious I think coupled with that you know 
President Zelensky is coming over because that Ukraine fatigue is setting into the public consciousness. And he so he has got to sort of get this right back up the agenda. So in that's in the immediate sense, I think it's achieved something. And, you know, Rishi, as all leaders do, you know, Zelensky is very popular, is getting that bounce from from a, a Zelensky visit. But this is this is only going to last for a few days at best. Uh, and the proof of the pudding is going to be whether there's going to be some serious uh, artillery or, or air power that's going to go over there. Moving on from Ukraine, we'll be talking today about the reshuffle and what it tells us about how Sunak plans to fight the next election. Uh, we'll also be talking about the Tory backseat drivers currently fighting Sunak for control of the wheel. Just what are his predecessors, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, up to behind the scenes? Hundred days into the job and, and one party chairman down after Nadim Zahawi had to quit over his taxes, the Prime Minister this week did hold his first reshuffle. There was a bit of musical chairs to create some new departments, which we'll come to in a minute. And perhaps the big surprise was Greg Hans, uh, retread from the David Cameron era, becoming party chairman, but with the Red Wall MP Lee Anderson as his deputy. Overall, though, it felt like a very sort of Sunaki kind of reshuffle, really, a bit technocratic, a bit managerial muted in a way, given the sort of dire state of the polls he's responding to, nothing particularly to make ordinary voters sit up and think, well, that's totally changed what I think about the Tories. Pippa, why do you think he felt he had to make these changes now? What's he trying to do? Well, I think he actually, in an ideal world for him, would have made these changes when he first came in. I mean, there's two elements to this. One is forming a cabinet um, of his, that is truly of his own. Um, and he made all sorts of compromises when he first took over in order to keep the, the Brexiteer right wing of the party happy. So Ella Braverman was put in post in order to keep the Trussites happy. Um, James Cleverly and Therese Coffey were, uh, were kept in, in senior jobs. Um, and some of his key lieutenants, people like Mel Stride and John Glenn and Oliver Dowden, didn't really get the big jobs that they might otherwise have got. And of course, Jeremy Hunt, uh, who was not a, a sort of a natural ally, stayed in post as Chancellor because of the sort of continuity and the requirement, the, the need for the markets to sort of see a, a degree of stability. So he's been wanting since then to have a cabinet that is a bit more in his own making. And of course, this week was no sort of dramatic radical overhaul, but it was sort of a step uh, in that direction. And, and equally, he's wanted to do some of the machinery of government stuff from the off as well. We t- heard him talking about it during the, the summer leadership campaign. He's wanted to do these things earlier. I think the reason that he's doing them now, which is as soon as he possibly could, um, given the circumstances and everything else he's had to deal with, is because he has limited time and he thinks that these the separation of the different departments will help him deliver on his sort of bigger vision, his bigger vision, which some of his own MPs feel he's been lacking to date. And yet all those people that you mentioned, you know, hangovers from the previous era, they're all still there. I mean, it's the first reshuffle I can remember in which no one actually got fired. You know, we're used to people coming in and and going out. What is, does that tell us something about how strong Sunak thinks his position is, Salma, that, that no one's actually getting fired? I think it tells us more about what he's got to play with. And I think this is, I mean, we'll get to it around the machinery of, machinery of government changes. And it's, it's really interesting that it's more about sort of the technical changes of that rather than the personnel. And, you know, like you said, you know, Greg Hans is a retread, bit of a surprise. Lee Anderson, super surprising. All these people, I think it's basically, 
it's it's limited room to maneuver because you you've got all these people that have been on the back benches or on the front bench in one form or another um you know over the last 12 years i mean personally i was hoping for like you know real drama maybe a theresa may return or a, even a liz trust return i mean that would have been delightful wouldn't it but adding a bit of edge to it um but you know the, those are kind of like the kind of fa fantastical options but the, the ones that are sort of you know the only ones left if he doesn't do these kind of like minuscule little personnel moves yeah i mean i'm kind of fascinated by the partnership of, of hans and anderson which does feel a bit like two ends of a particularly awkward pantomime sort of smoothie <laughs> london remainer and one old bruiser who's probably best known for arguing that people use food banks because they don't know how to cook i mean for those who are not familiar with, with lee anderson's general style we've got a short clip here of him engaging if that's the word with steve bray the protesters who, who's more or less permanently camped outside the parliament and who evidently quite successfully winds him up it's a new year happy new year but you've not got a new job yet have you're you? still same a, old job you're I, still a parasite you're I still a stranger and you're still a million. And at that point, it descends into an inaudible scuffle. You can see the idea. I mean, one one chairman to appeal to liberal Southern Tories and, and one chairman sort of attack dog appealing to, to disillusioned leavers. But is that going to work in practice? Do, I mean, Pippa, you've suggested that the Anderson appointment could end in tears. What What is it that worries you about it? I think he's just a very controversial figure and he's always, seems to me, on the lookout for a fight. We've heard, uh, you know, several controversies to date. You mentioned the food bank, could be critical of food bank users, which left him uh, with the, the nickname 30p Lee. Uh, he said he wouldn't support England um, football team because the players were going to take the knee. He's very much a culture warrior, a red wall Rottweiler, as he's been described by some colleagues. Mm -hmm. And I think that the feeling in the Conservative Party is that while there may be some appetite for that sort of more robust conservatism in former Labour um, areas, some parts of the country, although I think that in itself is questionable. Conservative MPs in seats which are potentially at risk for the Lib Dems are a little bit more concerned. And I spoke to one this week that suggested that actually seeing Lee Anderson on the doorstep in sort of the leafy shires was certain to drive voters into the arms of the Lib Dems rather than retain them for the Conservative Party. So uh, it, it feels slightly tokenistic to me. I think they thought we want a sort of, you know, northern, northern voice, red wool bruiser. But I think, I think he's going to live to regret it. Can you see why I would have wanted Anderson on board, Salma? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is kind of like real sort of pating by numbers political logic, isn't it? It's kind of like, oh, red wall, let's get someone in from the red wall. Uh, okay, you know, and you get the list up and it's like, okay, you know, he seems good. And just, just to echo what Pippa said, you know, I was brought up in a red wall seat. I, you know, lived in Heimbrun. My parents are still there. And I don't, I don't think everybody does think, as you say, you know, like Lee Anderson. And that is kind of like the basis on which they made their decisions. And in fact, my parents voted for Brexit, which was an incredible surprise to me. But, you know, I would say that 80% of the rest of their political view is not shared um, by Lee Anderson. So there's that aspect to it. It will create a problem. And Greg Hans and Lee Anderson are absolutely the personification of this expanded Overton window, right? They absolutely show you of how that coalition is, is really pulling apart because there are inconsistencies in what these two groups want. And ultimately, the job of rationalising that to 
bring everybody down to a centre is the job of the Prime Minister. And his the criticism of that is that there is a lack of vision and there's a distinct lack of Conservative vision here. And until that is there, there is nothing for these two competing sides to work towards. I think it can be rationalised. I think it can be rationalised, but that has to come from the top. We're going to come to the vision thing in a moment, but before we get to that, just quickly... Uh- one uh, striking thing about this reshuffle uh, is who didn't move, and that's Dominic Raab, the Deputy Prime Minister, currently under investigation for bullying allegations. Obviously, he has denied those allegations, and the investigation is ongoing. Pippa, you've done a lot of reporting on this. Should we now assume that means Raab is, is safe, that the Prime Minister decided to keep him, or could he still be sacked at a later date? I don't think we should make any assumptions on this at all. Um, look, there's eight official complaints, which each bar two of them represent multiple complainants. Um, there's dozens of individuals that have either acted as complainants or as witnesses. Uh, you know, that's a large number of civil servants that are alleging poor behaviour um, from Dominic Raab. And I've spoken to a number of those individuals. And this isn't sort of, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg and others have sort of dismissed it as snowflakery or whatever. These are, you know, robust civil servants that have worked for some quite demanding ministers over the years. They're highly professional, um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, in some cases being reduced to being sick before meetings, being in tears, and in one particularly awful case, contemplating suicide. I mean, these are serious allegations. And the reason Rishi Sunak decided that there had to be an investigation by this KC Adam Tolley into these allegations was because he read some of the written submissions which people had made. So I think it is looking pretty bad for, for Dominic Raab. I think people in number 10, many of them would agree with that. One said to us last week that he was toast. And I think the general assumption in this place is that uh, Westminster is that is that um, he will struggle to survive politically, it's particularly because Rishi Sunak has made it such a sort of a key promise to restore integrity, accountability and professionalism at every level of his government. And if that doesn't start with his deputy prime minister, then it means nothing. I mean, it is. We've been here a few times before of late, if we're honest. You know, there were similar allegations against Gavin Williamson, who, who did get sacked, Priti Patel, who didn't. It feels like there's something deeper going on here, Salman. Like, you know, these relationships keep going wrong. There's either a systemic issue with appointing ministers or there's some kind of culture clash with the civil service. Something, this is not a happy, you know, general working environment. What do you think is going on? Yeah, so I did something for the Institute for Government the other week, which is called, they've launched something called the IFG Academy. And it really is sort of tackling some of these things, you know, what what happens, um, you know, when a minister is essentially dropped into a department, and they don't know the brief, and they don't really know how the system works. And how do you get people to sort of work together a bit better? And Kath Haddon, who is a, a director at the IFG, has this brilliant description of the way civil servants treat ministers, and it's um, a child god. Yes, to some extent, you've got to kind of like worry if they're sort of tired and have they been fed. And then you also are kind of like, I've got to deliver for this person. And I think that is true. Nobody can excuse poor behaviour in the workplace. But I think if we're going to try and change this around and create a better understanding, we have to create a bit more kind of seriousness about how one uh, responds to civil servants and how one deals with ministers and, and have a bit more of an understanding about these two different worlds that don't necessarily have a great way of communicating with each other and making that better. Um, and I've seen it myself. I mean, you know, as a special advisor, when you're dropped into a department, you don't know what you're doing. And then all these people are looking to you for direction and answers. And what does the minister think? And what does the minister want? And you're kind of like, 
I'm 28 years old. I've never managed anyone in my life. You know, I'm just kind of like someone who's political who kind of like knows how this world works. And I'm essentially a bag carrier like all of you. I mean, to be blunt, you don't get promoted to cabinet either for being a good people manager or a good manager, you know, someone who can run an office well. You tend to get promoted for very different reasons. Is that part of it? You don't train people to be cabinet ministers. No, you don't train people to be ministers or cabinet ministers. But also, that I think that's right. It's kind of like, you know, ministers can't hire and fire people that they have. So they have no sort of control over who is helping them deliver their policy agendas. And every minister is different, right? It's kind of like, taking an MP that is essentially entrepreneurial because it's that person's name on the ticket doing the campaigning and essentially putting them into an incredibly corporate structure um, that people, you know, want to kind of like get in there, are excited about what they can do and then quite often are told no. Um, and it's kind of like understanding why they're told no, trying to understand what is that institutional um, knowledge that means that, you know, we've tried this before or we can't really do it this way or here are the limitations of it. And also getting the civil service to perhaps communicate the advice in a much more sort of open way, but sort of trying to present those options. But, you know, civil service also churn around quite a lot. It's very hard to keep people in their posts for kind of like over two years if they're not going to be promoted out. So you lose all that knowledge of how to deal in private office and how to kind of like manage the negotiations between ministers and secretaries of state and across Whitehall as well. So it's incredibly complicated. Sunak held on to Zahawi well after everyone else thought it was over, Pippa, and uh, there's a sense you certainly pick up that, that people think that might be happening with Rob as well. Does he need to sort of learn to get ahead of these scandals quicker and just work out which way the wind is blowing early on? Well, there's a couple of things. I think um, Rishi Sunak, by his very nature, wants to try and do things by the book. And I think that's why, even though he probably didn't even need an inquiry into Nadim Zahawi, we didn't really learn much more after the inquiry than we you know, that we already knew at the beginning. Um, he felt that there had to be a due process and that was the fair and, and responsible way forward. And the problem, with obviously, with the Dominic Raab case is that it is so now, so wide reaching that it's taking months and months. And really, there's no room for Sunak to move. He can't suspend him now. If he was going to suspend him, he would have to do it at the beginning. So he's got to let it, he's got to let it run. But I think what they both get to the heart of is really what sort of prime minister he is and and the limitations of his political instincts. And lots of people around here say he's more like a chancellor in that he's very across the detail and the policy, but he doesn't necessarily have the sort of the gut political instinct that might come with a politician or certainly that came with some of his predecessors, not all of them, of course. He maybe doesn't have the sort of the overarching or isn't able to see the big picture and sort of spot the pitfalls further down the line. Talking about the the bigger picture in this reshuffle, you've obviously had you know four new departments created, one for science, tech, and innovation. You've got a sort of slimmed down version of what used to be culture, media, and sport. We have a new department for energy and net zero under Grant Shapps, and what's left of his old business department merges with trade under Kemi Badenoch. I mean, there's a lot of new office logos coming up, and a lot of very complicated hot desking probably down the line. But was it actually worth it, Sam? In terms of what you what you get out of that in the long term you've gone through a very sort of complex replumbing job and i'm not entirely clear on what that's delivered that that's worth all the upheaval and the inevitable fact that it's going to take people a while to get used to their new jobs and where they are now i honestly think that this was the most pointless exercise 
um and yeah you know me i actually try i actually try and be sort of quite even-handed about it and go oh well on one hand and then on the other um but this is totally deck chair shuffling and this i mean i have never ever seen a machinery of government change uh that actually makes a real strategic difference to policy and it is a very whitehall centric thing and it is this idea that actually you can just move the pieces around on the board and that will have some impact out there in the wider world. I mean, MOG changes, it, it really just doesn't have an impact on policy. And actually, given the length of time that he's got to deliver, which is, again, 18 months to an election, I just don't understand why you're going to distract Whitehall with all this movement if you wanted to do something that didn't necessarily naturally exist in the way that Whitehall was divided up there were a lot of cross um, department ministerial working groups which is a very quick way of getting the decisions and the right people in the room um, around something and that was all done away with during the Theresa May era which is you know when they also the last time they renamed um, the business department and they called it Bayes which obviously everybody called beige because of you know the kind of stuff that was happening in there and um, sorry, I'm not going to keep ranting on about it, but it does really annoy me because the, the practicality of this, whilst it sounds great, you know, on paper and ooh, we've made it all into like sort of lovely, neat columns, means nothing. We've stirred up some traumatic memories here for you. We don't, we don't need to investigate them. I've been triggered. <laughs> I've been triggered. Pippa, I mean, you could argue that at least you can now see, you know, an outline idea that post-Brexit economic growth is meant to come from science and tech and, and renewable energy and Whitehall's been reorganised to deliver a bit more of that. But have we learned anything we didn't know about Sunakism, about what the great, great vision is? What are the missed opportunities here? What would you have done instead? Oh, goodness. I mean, I think I probably wouldn't have spent six months, as Summer says, reorganising the, the deck chairs and I would have cracked on with it all immediately. I think we all know that Rishi Sunak um, uh, it wants to focus on the economy, on the future and future-proofing the economy with, you know, renewables and with technology and innovation. Um, I think you could do that with a series of speeches and, and also the, you know, the cross-government working groups. I think at this point in the cycle, these sorts of changes are more disruptive, disruptive than beneficial. And the sort of thing that people do when they first come to power at the beginning of sort of a 10-year period in power or five-year period in power, but, you know, hopefully 10 years, rather than at what they feel is very much like the end game. It just feels like, I'm afraid to say, a bit of a, a bit of a waste of time. And, and and more than that, you know, will the public actually notice in terms of tangible policy outcomes? Probably not. And if they did notice, would they care? Not really. I think they would think actually what's more important is what changes on the ground, particularly at this point in the political cycle, not what's going on in Whitehall that just looks like more navel gazing and more sort of like, you know, bubble centric manoeuvres. The one that feels like the odd miss to me is the Home Office, because I mean, if so much depends on the performance of the Home Office, you know, small boats, obviously, but the, the mess that the Metropolitan Police has turned into, you know, crime and antisocial behaviour in Rebel, all of those are really big, salient things. And I wouldn't say Suella Braverman was like the top performer of that cabinet. Anyway, <laughs> we'll take a brief pause here for a minute. And when we come back after the break, we're going to be talking about the big beasts on the back benches. Welcome back. 
Wednesday's Prime Minister's questions was unsurprisingly mainly dominated by Ukraine, but the Prime Minister was asked an interesting question by the SNP's Stephen Flynn. Mr Speaker, in recent days, the former Prime Minister said that she did not regret her time in office. Does the Prime Minister regret her time in office? Yeah. <laughs> I think clear up which one, Minister. Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker, I'm, great, I'm grateful to all my predecessors for the contribution that they make to public life. If you'd somehow managed to miss the return of, of Liz Truss to the fray, this week the Prime Minister, who was famously outlasted by a lettuce, bounced back to tell the spectator that on reflection she thought her ideas were basically pretty much right, but the establishment had let her down. The weather's changed. The weather's changed. And it, what I found was trying to make those arguments that low taxes are a good thing, that they'll help attract investment into Britain, that that will drive economic growth, that that economic growth will benefit everybody. Those arguments didn't fall on particularly fertile ground. Including in your own party? Including in my own party. But I think, you know, broadly across the media, the arguments that we might have made 20 years ago that were taken for granted are no longer longer readily, readily believed. I have to say, if I'd sort of almost bankrupted the country, I think I might still be too embarrassed to get out of bed at this stage. But Liz Truss is clearly made of, of Cerner stuff. So if, you, if you'd been her spad, Samuel, would you have advised her to, to lay low a little bit longer than, than three months before um, coming back? Well, it sort of depends what you think would be in her strategic interest. So if I were her special advisor, then I might have, I might have still... Uh, suggested an intervention I think my advice would have been to show a lot more contrition in the manner in which she did it so you know any any advisor worth their salt is always thinking about how you make your principle relevant right and and how you how you sort of promote them and promote the idea I think she has lost again on the argument in delivering it because she hasn't recognized the thing that annoyed everybody about the way that she delivered it and sort of saying that it was external completely ignores the fact that she didn't listen to anyone that you know her chancellor not only delivered a budget that spooked the markets but then doubled down and talked about more tax cuts and sounded fundamentally irresponsible because she went on this ideological canter she, she wants to remain relevant i get that she wants to keep talking about her argument but she really does have to accept the responsibility in a way that she has not i was sort of surprised that she was didn't really acknowledge, I mean, not, people whose mortgages went through the roof as a result of that budget, yeah. you know, people who really were hit in the pocket by it, don't necessarily, aren't perhaps in the most receptive mood to hear, hear about how, you know, it was all someone else's fault. But I mean, what do you think she's trying to achieve? Pepper? Do you think she, she did say she doesn't want to come back as prime minister? She just wants to make the argument. Is that where you really think she is? Oh, I always think there's a yet at the end of these responses from politicians, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I mean, clearly, she, she doesn't have, you know, any any chance at all of coming back as prime minister in the in the near term. But what her allies say is, look, she's only in her late 40s. There's plenty of plenty of time further down the road. And I think what's trying to happen here is not Liz Truss staging a comeback. I mean, she doesn't have the support on the backbenches or anywhere near it for to try and to try and do that. But it's more about defending her ideological position now ahead of potentially an election which the Conservatives lose. And then at that point, continuing to make the same argument. And then maybe some point uh, having a run as, as leader of the opposition. And if not, 
in terms of her running the party, but then at least in terms of her sort of leading on 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 that sort of ideological strand, the sort of low tax cutting. Um, uh, focus on growth, uh, supply-side reforms. Uh, there were bits to her arguments. I mean, obviously, it landed incredibly badly, not least the markets were spooked because there hadn't been no sort of um, rolling the pitch in the run-up to it. And the, the fundamental problem was trying to cut taxes at the same time as increasing spending. But there were elements, to be fair to her, of the sort of supply-side reforms, which are things which the country's been calling out for for a very long time. Reform of childcare is one. Um, a focus on growth within sort of the bigger picture um, is another, and and you know immigration to support business, um, some planning liberalisation to get more housing. I mean these are all sort of valid areas for debates, albeit not necessarily at the time or in the way that this trust made them. So I think she wants to be in a position where she is a, a go-to voice on all of this. Um, but it, I think you know it, it's not; it, it can't possibly be whatever her her own sort of personal aspirations and ambitions. It, it's not going to be tied to a leadership bid. It's more about the ideas. I thought the response from the from the right wing press, you know, from what would normally have been friendly papers, was sort of interestingly lukewarm as well. There's a bit of a sense that I don't know that people find it a bit embarrassing for her to be the standard bearer. You no, know, even if they agree with the argument, with the low tax argument, that they don't quite want Liz Trust to be making it because it's a bit of an awkward reminder of of how it how it went last time. Did you? I mean, did it worry you, Sam, at all that she she sort of makes this argument? That kind of oh you know this unnamed establishment is is was holding her back and to be fair you'd phrase nails in the interview I did push her on that and say well you know you were prime minister you have the power who was stopping you exactly doing what is it a bit dangerous that that can lead you down a quite conspiracist path yeah but I think this is this is very much this kind of idea of who is an outsider and feeling like an outsider and I think Liz Truss possibly you know from everything that I've read you know, still feels like an outsider and they they were out to get me. Um, They were always out to get me. Um, But ultimately, I think people have to accept and acknowledge that um, when you become prime minister, there is no one more establishment than you. And the whole establishment was moved to form um, a position that she had taken. Um, But it is it is kind of, you know, it's the sort of lowest form of self-defense to sort of talk about these shadowy characters because ultimately that is not true um and it's very lazy to do that actually and this is where the sort of lack of self-awareness i think certainly as you say with the right-wing papers was just you know it's just sort of it's not sellable it's not believable um and thankfully we're not we're not like the us as much as people try and make that comparison um and i think people just think no this this was on you um and so we don't have this kind of like conspiratorial sort of surge that comes up behind a statement like that talking of former prime ministers popping up out of the woodwork uh, it's obviously been a bit of a week of it boris johnson has also as we discussed earlier been suspiciously visible of late turning up on the former cabinet minister nadine doris's new chat show there's a sentence i didn't think i'd ever say asking questions in in parliament with neither truss or johnson going quietly and theresa may still in the commons. I mean, it does seem that Rishi Sunak is contending with an unusual number of backseat drivers. I mean, every prime minister has noises off, but this is, this is you know, a whole chorus of them. How does he, is there any way of shutting them up, Sam? Or does he ignore them, challenge them directly, try and find them a job to keep them quiet that preferably involves them going abroad a lot? What, what's the best strategy for dealing with them? <laughs> um, well, I don't think he's got to do anything with Theresa because she sort of, you know, largely stays quiet. And I think with the other two, you just got to let them sort of cannibalise each other's support because there's only so much sort of rebellion that any backbencher can take. 
so you know he he sort of does need to just uh get on with the job but if he's if he's really going to in my view if he's really going to kind of like repel the forces of his predecessors then he's going to have to try and occupy the space a little bit more um i think and this is one of the fundamental weaknesses of somebody who is not naturally political and who naturally doesn't sort of go on the front foot who wants to go away and get all the facts and the evidence he is leaving himself exposed and you know liz and boris are encroaching into his territory um and this is where political communication really comes into its own uh because being able to constantly get on the front foot and on top of the agenda and pushing yourself really requires deft communication and handling. And I think his his ability to retreat into the policy and, and wonkishness is allowing his um, enemies, for want of a better word, uh, to to come in and, and be on the attack. And so he the only way that he can repel them is is attack himself. Ultimately, the noise doesn't stop until his poll ratings get better, does it, Pippa? Is that what it, it comes down to? People always criticise when they think it's going badly. Yeah, probably. But it's it's also proximity to the general election. And there will come a point where um, conservative backbenchers recognise that actually they're doing more damage by speaking out on issues and they'll row in behind Rishi Sunak. And we're, look, we're expecting an election in 2024, probably in autumn 24 with the party conferences as a jumping off point, but possibly spring 24 if the economy improves faster than um, than currently predicted. Um so, you know, there will be a period of time before that, the sort of the long campaign, the unofficial campaign, if you like, where conservative politicians kind of row in a bit more, um, accept their lot um, and, you know, put, put their shoulders to the wheel and, and try and and try and improve things. Uh, but up until that point, there are some serious points of contention ahead. And there are, of course, always backbenchers who will put their, um, their, their own priorities and ideological positions on things like tax cuts, on things like the Northern Ireland Protocol ahead of the frankly, the survival of the party. So I think we will see a number of Conservative backbenchers that will continue to be difficult right up until polling day. It's going to be a lively few months. Thank you so much to Salma and to Pippa. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Cacutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 